Welcome to Inside Ulster, the rugby podcast from the Bell Tale, with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendrick. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Inside Ulster. My name is Neve Campbell, and this week on the podcast, we're going to be discussing Ulster's unfortunate struggles and recent losses an in-depth analysis of their performance against La Rochelle at the weekend, a preview of their game with Connacht this Friday. But first and foremost, we obviously have to chat about the controversy that is their last-minute stadium change from Saturday, as Jonathan has wonderfully dubbed Pitchgate for us today. Um, um, as always, I am joined by Belfast Telegraph rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley, that I just mentioned, and Belfast Telegraph sports reporter Adam McKendry. So... A wee bit of background for anyone that didn't know, Ulster were forced to play their inverted commas home game at the Aviva Stadium this weekend due to adverse weather conditions affecting the Ravenhill grounds. There's now a bit of um, bad bad will, would you say, between Ulster and the European Professional Club Rugby. Now, um, they're supposed to carry out a full review into the decision-making process that saw the provinces clash against La Rochelle move to the Aviva Stadium, but... Adam, what what is the state of the situation or where are we at with it all now? Well, the latest is that Ulster and EPC are going to be doing a joint review into what happened, essentially going back over the last week and looking at how the decision was made to move the game from Ravenhill to the Aviva Stadium. Um, and I, I think it, it's just essentially going to be, you know, <laughs> I, it, it's going to eventually be who was at fault here. You know, who do we portion blame too because the whole thing just dragged out far too long um whenever you go back to the middle of last week and we knew that the situation was going to be that the game was in danger because of the conditions and that, that's out of anybody's control you know the conditions are are what they are though you can't control the weather as much as we'd love to but you know, there are things that led up to this game being moved and I think this review is going to be fascinating reading whenever it comes out, if if they make it public and I, I hope they do because for all the questions that have not been answered, I think it would be good to enlighten people as to why this game was moved given all that happened after that. I mean, I think if the game had just been moved and... It, it was played down in, in Dublin and there were fans there and it had been moved slightly earlier then I think people would be happy enough to not go into sort of all the gory details in the background and uh, trawl through that but the fact that it was moved less than 24 hours before kickoff it was moved to a stadium where they weren't able to have fans apart from a small La Rochelle I think it was called a delegation wasn't it in the end as, as opposed to fans although they made a a queer racket so they did um and the fact that it wasn't played at the rds which as we revealed it in the sunday life on sunday that ulster could be fined over so i think in any other circumstance you'd probably just be saying okay go off have your review and they'll work it out in the in the background either someone from ulster or epcr has to put themselves up for interview to answer questions about what happened or for me they have to release the findings of this review or if there's a report that comes out of it they have to release the report because there's just questions that need to be answered that so far are still up in the air. Jonathan like 
think maybe people might not know this, but as part of the participation agreement before any team does embark upon each European season, they do teams do have to nominate a second stadium um, should their home grounds be you know incapacitated. And as we know now, Ulster's was supposed to be the, RD, supposed to be the RDS. So I think people thinking, how are they so ill-prepared? They actually were prepared, but then they were told quite late on that, no, they couldn't use the RDS. So what's the crack there? Um <laughs> Yeah, so these forums are somewhat of a box-ticking exercise, really, but there is that you have to sign in order to play in the competition, but there are some important elements in there, such as where you play if your state or if your pitch freezes. Ulsters, we, we are on the island of Ireland as well, so this is obviously going to happen. Or <laughs> yeah, water like, you know, exactly. Um, it's not like this is a, a once-in-a-generation occurrence that uh, there's eight days of frost in her, but... Yes, Ulster is the RDS on Friday after EPCR had made the decision that the pitch was um, was unplayable at Ravenhill. It emerged that there were some issues in terms of guaranteeing the RDS. Now, the RDS is obviously owned by Royal Dublin Society. It's not owned by the IRFU. So there is rental issues there. There's mm-hmm staffing issues there and then at the same time like they'd obviously um didn't come to pass but at the same time you were also hearing on friday afternoon that leinster's game was in doubt because the pitch wasn't in the condition that they thought that it was come the gloucester game that was kicking off at eight o'clock now i think that was a sort of brief period in the afternoon um that there was talk about that so nobody has as of yet answered the question as to why the game couldn't be played in the RDS. There are a number of theories that we sort of went over there. Like So that's one one of a number of questions that still need to be answered. But it is interesting that in terms of the culpability, if you like, that's where that talk of an EPCR fine comes from. The fact that Ulster in the participation agreement say that their backup venue is the RDS and then when it came down to it, they couldn't guarantee the RDS. Mm-hmm. One of your comment pieces in the Belfast Telegraph the weekend talked about how um, and the headline was Ulster's War of Words with EPCR could have long-lasting impact beyond this week. Um, basically, Jonathan, whose who's fault is it, do you think, or what's going to happen now between the two? Because John, Johnny Petri, the CEO of Ulster, he's, um, he's been voicing his, his um, distaste, let's just say, on Twitter about the whole thing too. Yeah, and I think that's interesting probably as another element and I'll come to that but like I think Adam alluded to it but what's been fascinating about this from like a media perspective and what's continued to give this story life is the fact that there is fallout between I suppose what is viewed as a faceless governing body in terms of the EPCR and Ulster who have their figurehead Johnny Petrie on Twitter flat out throughout Friday evening. So, like, Glasgow moved their game to Murrayfield on Wednesday. It was played on Friday. And it was basically just viewed as, right, well, that's happened. That's not great. But now the situation on that end has completely moved on. It's just like the pitch was frozen, had to move to Murrayfield. Not great, but here we are. Whereas... (laughs) As Adam said, you know, you've got this situation of a review. You've got EPCR who, reading between the lines, 
and that's what we're doing with EPCR because they don't have a Twitter account or well not one that's uh, <laughs> fire, firing out messages on a Friday on a Friday night oh, w- wouldn't you just love the Champions Cup account to start firing out these random replies to fans yeah if they just like, gave it to the intern for the weekend <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> um, here's what we know just start replying mate. yeah so like I mean basically like EPCR stance is that um, Ulster tr- or were set in this idea that the game could be moved to Sunday their stance is that the it was known on Tuesday that the game was not going to be able to play be played on Sunday. EPCR would say that if the game had been moved to Sunday, first and foremost, it couldn't have been broadcast because BT Sport couldn't guarantee that. And there's a knock-on effect there in terms of TMOs, citing complaints, what have you, um, HIAs actually as well, um, if you don't have camera footage, which is the situation that they could have been in. Then simply the fact that the game could not be guaranteed. Like, it's all well and good saying that 60% of the pitch is unplayable now, but we're anticipating that the weather's going to change overnight. What? Sorry, go ahead. Well, I I was just going to say, I've never understood this argument that the pitch was playable on Saturday morning. I, I don't doubt that the pitch was playable on Saturday morning. I think it would be stupid of them to start saying so vehemently that the pitch was playable if... Someone could have gone down, looked at it themselves and gone, no, it's not. So I, I don't doubt that what they're saying is true, that the pitch was playable on Saturday. But it doesn't matter that the pitch was playable on Saturday when you have to prove the pitch is playable the night before. Like, what what happens if the proposed weather... Wh- or Sorry, what happens if they say, look, we'll, we'll go ahead, we'll have a pitch inspection tomorrow morning, and instead of the weather that did happen, there was another cold snap overnight, and the pitch is unplayable. You're asking broadcasters to move down to Dublin at... What would that have been about seven hours notice? You'd ask the teams to relocate at short notice. You're telling fans at short notice that the game has suddenly been shifted. I I don't understand this argument of the pitch was playable. You had to prove it the night before. You couldn't prove it the night before. That's how it goes. And, you know, if we go by the, uh, the Glasgow example as well, they probably should have had to have proved it two days in advance as opposed to one. So... Well, I mean, that was EPCR's original stance. Yeah. EPCR's original um, briefings, if you like, were that the decision was going to be made on Tuesday, or sorry, Thursday, or at the latest Friday morning. Mm-hmm. Now, the pitch inspection occurred 2 o'clock on Friday because that was after the match referee had got there. There's been a lot of talk that the match referee thought that the pitch would be playable on Saturday, despite, as we said, 60% of it being unplayable on Friday. But... I think there's too much clinging to that because Luke Pierce isn't a weatherman, so he's working mm-hmm. off the same weather forecast as everybody else, but it's not like he can guarantee the weather forecast. Exactly, and, that, and that's what I'm saying. If you make the call on Friday night that we will wait until Saturday morning and because you think the weather's going to be good and then the weather completely changes, well, there's so much more at stake than just the game. You've got sponsors to keep happy, broadcasters to keep happy, fans to keep happy, the the travelling team to keep happy, you know. You have you have the burden of responsibility is to make sure that this game can go ahead in advance. I suppose to play devil's advocate, there is the sense of what we just said there that Leinster at four o'clock in the afternoon couldn't guarantee that their game at eight o'clock was going to be playable. Yes, but and then it it was by the time of kickoff. Like, is is that is that not a slightly different situation though? In that they proved that the game could go ahead the day before, and then the weather changed overnight, and that put the pitch in jeopardy. Like, if let's say Ulster had been told that the pitch was, was playable, as in the the pitch was 100% playable on Friday afternoon 
and then there was a cold snap overnight and the pitch became unplayable the next day well there's nothing they can do about that so but the difference is Ulster's pitch was unplayable on Friday evening or sorry on Friday afternoon whenever they did the pitch inspection that to me is the difference I suppose you would need to know when the first inspection of the RDAS was which uh we don't know. I mean, to me, it's the first that I've ever heard of a pitch inspection being carried out so far, or a final pitch inspection being carried out so far in advance. Like, as an example, and I know that there's not the same money at stake, but, like, the Irish League games that were called off the pitch inspections were in the afternoon of the game. Um, again, I know the money's not the same. The other argument is that, you know, you listed all the people that were um, could have been negatively impacted had the game been moved at short notice but the people that were ultimately negatively impacted and this isn't to do with who's to blame your my sympathy is with these people regardless of who's to blame the people that are negatively impacted are the stakeholders that appeared to matter the least which are the match going fans and i've never agreed with the idea that in any competition that the match going fans should be the group that have the least say mm. and that's what this or that's what this situation looks like and that's what's sad about the whole thing because this was the most eagerly anticipated game of the season this was the European champions coming to Belfast this was a lot of people even a lot of like students and stuff back home that you know obviously they probably get the injury probably monster as well but you know this was probably their game and I think that's what's sad mm. I agree with you 100% on what you're saying about everything else like the onus is on Ulster to make sure that their pitch is playable for me the big thing isn't so much whether it was playable on Saturday it's when did you start the efforts to make it playable that's the big thing and that's where I think EPCR are going to eventually get the moral high ground on this one Mm -hmm. they seem to be losing it in a way over the course of the weekend because a lot of the anger seems to be directed towards them but their stance is well did Ulster put the coverage on quickly enough given that the Met Office warning for bad weather was on Wednesday of the preceding week so when did the covers go on when did the heaters arrive which we believe was you know they also released a statement on Wednesday saying that they were coming that they were still coming so that's Thursday they knew there was a problem with the pitch Tuesday we you know we we had that story on Tuesday it was mm. the back page of Wednesday's paper that there was an issue with the pitch and we, we were down at Ravenhill on Tuesday and we could see that there were issues with the pitch. Like there were there were parts of the in goal areas that looked really rough. But these are like the, these are these are the questions that need to be answered. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's all well and good. And I do think it's good. Like I have to stress, I do think it's good that fans feel like they have this direct line to the CEO when he responds to them on Twitter. But you can't have that and then not have the accountability that comes with answering these questions. Mm-hmm. So I'm aware that he did give an interview to a media outlet over the weekend. But you, well, it's not enough. No, it's not enough because these questions aren't answered. And these are the questions that need to be answered before anything that's posted on Twitter can yeah. really be taken as part of a full picture because we don't have the full picture. And if, <laughs> you know, it's like anything that's put out by one person on social media, like, it's not the full picture and it's not it's not official no well yeah it's not official and it's not accountability because accountability is answering questions that you don't get to choose what they are 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, hundred percent. One thing as well, there, Johnson. Like what you're saying for anyone, by the way, who just doesn't have Twitter or wasn't isn't following Johnny Petrie. Um, like you would have been in the dark. <laughs> one of the things, yeah. So at one stage, he was telling supporters that Ulster's preference was to see the game played on Sunday, and then he responded to one fan who had speculated that the players would be unimpressed with that. But then he said the CEO was also paid off basically um, but and talking about fans as well one thing I thought was really like just stark like Ulster lost out in the guts of what was it they were saying around 700,000 700, pounds yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean like we're not talking about a football team losing out on 700,000 pounds like we're talking about a rugby team like Ulster's two best players would make in the region of that a year mm-hmm. so like that's the level of a hole that you're talking about now you can make that up down the year in terms of additional matchday revenue, if you end up, say, hosting um, a semi-final in the league, hosting, say, doesn't look likely, but hosting a quarter-final in Europe, you know, you can make that back. So it's not like you've just set fire to a pile of money. But in real-world terms, and that's another question for um, the CEO, in real-world terms, how much of a hole is 700000 in your budget? Because... We know through looking at past accounts, like it's a hell of a lot. Well, to, to put it in context, they've just announced the signing of Stephen Kitchoff. I'd imagine it accounts for a good portion of his salary for next season. So that's kind of what what you're looking at here. Wouldn't get you Finn Russell. Though. It wouldn't get you Finn Russell. A million quid for <laughs> Finn Russell a year. Like he's a good player, but a million quid's a lot. Um, so look, yeah, like if if we look at it from an Ulster perspective this was the nightmare scenario. And look, I I understand, like, I don't have a problem with them playing it on Sunday, but we've already been over it. Like, the the factors that were in play, you could not play that game on Sunday. You can't broadcast it. (laughs) I don't think you want it clashing with the World Cup final. Like, uh, Yeah, I I, think that if it was played on Sunday, Ulster's suggestion was that it would be played at 12 o'clock on Sunday so that it didn't clash with the World well, then, Cup Well, then you're clashing with two other games. You have Munster and uh, Sale were both playing uh, on Sunday afternoon. So, so I, I, I like understand... 12 o'clock kickoff the week before Christmas? 12 o'clock kickoff just in general is a, is a no-go on a, on for a me. Sunday. On a Sunday. On a Sunday. No, no absolutely Sunday. not. Um, but even what one of the other things was that I think the LNR didn't want La Rochelle, play, they don't like five-day turnarounds Again, between their games. in the participation agreement, have we ever spoken so much about participation agreements <laughs> in anyone's life? Yeah. So, so that's like that's part of the top 14 particip- so participation yeah, la- agreement. I can't <laughs> even say it. Tongue twister. <laughs> La Rochelle, I think, play Friday this week in the top 14, yeah. which which would have been a five-day turnaround. So, from, La, Ro- uh, la-, so la Rochelle had to, ad- had to agree, and they weren't in a position to agree to it because... That would have been going against the LNR. And it's also worth noting that the LNR are on the board of EPCR, as are the UFC, mm. as are England. But like EPCR's stance is that it was never possible to play the game on Sunday. And Ulster knew that early in the week. There are certainly rumblings from mm. somebody within La Rochelle who would be talking to Irish media that it was made clear from La Rochelle's perspective on Tuesday that the game was not going to be played on Sunday. So the idea that it could be played on Sunday appears to be, a re- or that Ulster's preference was for it to be played on Sunday, appears to be a red herring because apparently, and again, this is just coming from... Reportedly, La- reportedly. Re- reportedly <laughs> from La Rochelle's side, the information was out there on Tuesday that the game was not going to be played on Sunday. But 
So that's, sorry, Adam, that's what I'm saying. Like, I do 100% agree with you in everything that you're saying. I just, I'm saying that it's sad that a competition that is built by fans, and not to over-egg the pudding, but built by essentially Ulster fans, because the competition could have died in 1998, mm. 99. But um, what Ulster fans brought to the competition revitalized, revitalized it. And it's sad that of all the stakeholders, so the LNR, the URC, the broadcasters, EPCR, Ulster Rugby as an organisation, well, I mean, they did lose like £700,000, but <laughs> it's sad to me that the opinions and um, interests, shall we say, of those fans mattered the least in this. And that this is where the question comes in of, as much as you want to play it at Ravenhill, and I completely understand why Ulster want to play it at Ravenhill. They don't want to move the game in the first place for the for logistical reasons of travel. Um, they want to have it at their home where they've had so many memorable European nights in the past. But whenever you're facing into a, into a situation where it felt like the odds were always against them from the start mm-hmm. to play the game at Ravenhill, for the sake of the fans and for the sake of at least having your fans in place, would you not consider just saying, yeah, we'll move the game we'll allocate tickets based on where everyone's sitting and we'll move the game down to the RDS. Like, my, my parents had tickets for the game and it's the most excited I've seen them for a game in a long time. And my dad was texting me the whole week saying, do you know where this is being played? Do you know where it's being moved to? And I I just had to say to him, I, I don't, I'm sorry. I think it'll be in Dublin, but I, I don't know for sure. And then you're completely blindsided by the fact that it's behind closed doors. So, you know, they've missed out on a game. There are countless of other fans. You've Johnny's already mentioned, you know, there are fans who have probably come back for Christmas and they've got tickets for this game against the defending European champions. Like that that's potentially going to be their biggest gate of the season. Gone. Riddle me this. How did hundred and fifty travelling supporters get to gain access to a behind closed doors game to a, again inverted commas home Ulster match <laughs> they snuck in the back door <laughs> yeah well I mean uh, a big avail with uh, not too many staff on it would have been possible but like um, I have to admit I don't have as much of a problem with this as a lot of fans a lot of Ulster fans do yeah I, and I get that I do but like I've also heard from Ulster fans who travel a bit more mm-hmm. and are sort of putting it out there. Well, what would you expect if the shoe was on the other foot? Like if you're you like fair play, yeah, yeah. Like, well, like we've we've travelled for a lot of games together, Johnny. Could you imagine if we got to a let, let, let's say theoretically going over to La Rochelle in January? If they suddenly said, "Oh, our pitch is unplayable. We're moving this down to Bordeaux." Now, I appreciate we're in a different situation where we're working at the game, so they'd have to let us in. But if they turned around and said... I wasn't even convinced that I was going to get that in at one point on Friday. <laughs> but if, if if we went there and they said, we're moving the game to Bordeaux and nobody's allowed in, you know, you, you've, you've essentially travelled for nothing. You'll, you'll, yeah. still, you'll still come over and you'll still have a good time. You know, you're, you're in a beautiful part of France and I've, I appreciate that Belfast is a really nice place to travel for people, as is Dublin. But you're over there for a reason and it would be a bit galling if you got all the way to Dublin and you were standing outside the Aviva as your team was playing over the other side of the wall. Like it's, Yeah, I think there was an element of the issue was caused by how noisy they were, because it was, like, they were noisy, and mm. it, it did make a strange day even stranger. But, and I think 
the fact that they were allegedly an official delegation. Now, we couldn't see this at the time because they were below us in the Aviva Stadium. Uh, everything's below the, the Aviva Stadium press box <laughs> in the Aviva. Um, Apart from Ronan Nogara. Well, he was below as well. He was behind the post this time. So oh, well, sorry. I thought you meant literally like right down below oh, where right, the press yeah, box yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was an official delegation, which includes sponsors. And this was their... So Ulster do this as well. Like They bring over sponsors to the, in inverted commas, glamour away European trip of mm. the year. Um, Belfast Cl- Claremont tends to be the big one that yeah. always gets Belfast or Northampton were La Rochelle's options um, this year so so Belfast, <laughs> are you, Belfast are you talking well. down Northampton I actually love Northampton I really <laughs> I really like Northampton um, so I'm not talking about that um, but again like Adam you mentioned that you know we've travelled on these charters before sometimes like when there's no other way to get to a game and so you have players coaches staff whatever then you have um sponsors potential sponsors whatever but there are also usually unsold seats on the plane that then get bought by fans and that i imagine is where the confusion came from of whether this was sponsors and official delegation whatever because i imagine that the most vocal among them and as dan mcfarland pointed out the five six seven eight nine ten year olds that were there that were that are obviously not sponsors um, were probably fans who had bought onto the charter. So essentially, the people that got in, I think, was the entirety of the official La Rochelle charter. But again, this is an unanswered question because would that have mattered at all if you had have had a twin track strategy of during last week of we really want this game to be at Ravenhill, we're dedicated to getting this game at Ravenhill, but also explored the possibility that it wasn't. I mean, ultimately... It, could have proved to be a moot point because obviously you would have been trying to do safety inspections and the like in the RDS and then the game ended up in the Aviva but could you not have invested that investigated that during the week and then at least had the proviso out there that you know this game could be in Dublin people could have started to make travel plans and then you could have had a number of Ulster fans there anyway but then what, the question then becomes which Ulster fans do you let in like if if you've only got a proportion of Ulster fans, who who gets the golden ticket? Well, I think you would have to say season ticket holders, wouldn't you? But um, again, you're banking on that number being um, above the number of season ticket holders. Now, not everybody would have been able to go. Like we saw Glasgow putting on buses to get fans there, but they were also offering refunds to fans that couldn't go. Now, it's about half the distance, I suppose, Glasgow to Edinburgh compared to Belfast to Dublin. But... I think just why we're talking about refunds, we should note the two Ulster's credits. They are going to refund everybody. Hmm. Um, well, I, th- I think it would have been ridiculous if they hadn't. Like, well, sorry. <laughs> it's a game that didn't go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but we saw during COVID that there was the option of not claiming a refund, shall we say. Um, I can't remember what the official ter- term was. It And again, like there have been fans on Twitter saying that they don't actually want the refund. Um because they would rather the club keep the money. But they have acted swiftly to get the money back into people's accounts, I suppose. Away from all the controversy... Um, there sur- was a game. Sur- <laughs> was there? Surrounding the actual location of the match. Um, it's Ulster's third loss in a row. They did come back from tw- 29 to nothing, um, down at half-time to claim two bonus points from defeat. But 
Adam, what's your overall synopsis or view of the game? It's probably not positive. <laughs> you know what? I was feeling a lot more positive at the end of the game than I think I am now, which is rare because so you're you... going to say then at half time. No, like... well, well, definitely more positive than I was at half time because at half time I was convinced that also we're going to be nilled in back to back weeks in Europe, which would have been an absolute catastrophe. But it, it's rare that I would come away from a game and then watch it back and actually end up feeling a little bit more negative about a game than I did at the time um, look that, the first half was abysmal and it's three, four halves in a row where Ulster were just a long long way off what we know they can produce every time they conceded they got themselves again on the back foot with poor discipline, the defence was passive again um, look, Hastoy's uh, try just before half time was, was just a bit of good fortune for, for La Rochelle, you know, Cooney's going back and he's covering that ball and he just can't quite get the bounce of it uh, and Hastoy steals in and I thought he had a brilliant game by the way just uh, I know we're going to talk about Ulster but I thought Hastoy just pulled the string superbly he's 22 is he maybe not even but um, cracking wee prospect uh, he is but that was the issue for Ulster you know every time La Rochelle scored you just wanted them to sort of calm things down for even just three or four minutes just get back in the game just get back in the routine and every single time it was a penalty that let La Rochelle get back into territory. They either give away a penalty, which Hastoy kicked, or they uh, concede a try. And then at, at halftime, look, they were better in the second half. Absolutely. Like, I I think they showed, a, even in the first sort of few phases, you suddenly saw them coming onto the ball with more pace. You saw them giving a few more offloads. They just seem to have that little bit more incentive. And I, I don't know what Dan McFarlane said at halftime, but whatever it said, he must have put a rocket uh, up them because they they badly needed it. And it just looked a lot better. I do think that Rochelle realised the game was won, especially whenever they scored that fifth try, whenever... Uh, uh, sorry, the, the third, third, try. third try, sorry. Whenever uh, Bergerit went over... Um, I think they knew that the game was won. You saw Skelton coming off. You saw Kerr Barlow. Uh, Kerr Barlow, sorry, came off at half time. But I think they sort of knew that they could, uh, uh, they could have brought him off anyway, even if it wasn't for the fact that he he had the HIA. Um, and then they started just bringing guys off as well because they knew that th- that game was gone. That that's what let Ulster get back into it. So look, absolute credit to them for for fighting back. You know, twenty nine nil down at half time. That's a game where you can easily just say again, it's it's not our night. We'll fight in the second half, but we know we're getting nothing out of this. But for them to actually put it all together and come away with two bonus points, I think is a massive psychological boost for them. Is it as big a boost as I thought it was at the time? No, I don't think so. I think La Rochelle did sort of realize that the this game was was won for them, and they were happy to just sort of. As as long as Ulster never got within striking distance of stealing their result away from them, I think they were happy enough just to just to see it out. There might be a bit of a disappointment on La Rochelle's side that they didn't get the the extra try for the bonus point, but in the end, I don't think it's going to matter too much for them. I think they're going to run this pool pretty easily from here. Jonathan, you wrote as well this weekend about how you know you thought Ulster had dreadful discipline, felt through a bit um, too desperate to prove a point, and it was a real character test. Um, I know you also said though it was Tom Stewart's first ever Champions Cup start for Ulster. What's your? I was maybe trying to go a wee bit more positive by saying that to you, but yeah, what's what's your review? 
Yeah, the discipline is an issue because I like I think I wrote about this like three weeks ago, and then it's got worse since. So if you look at <laughs> the look, angel of death, <laughs> yeah, if you look at the discipline, the discipline was so good over the first block in the season up to the final game of that block, which was the monster game. Up to that point, Ulster were the least penalised team in the URC, and since then they've been giving away thirteen penalties a game and. It doesn't take a genius to work out that if you score more tries than the other team but end up losing the game, then it's because you've given away too many kickable penalties. So it was a massive, massive part in the game to allow La Rochelle to build that 12-0 lead before they um, started to get the tries, which, as Adam pointed out, were all sort of like bounce of the ball stuff. Like Ulster were actually unlucky in that regard that all of La Rochelle's tries had a big element of fortune to them. So the discipline is a huge thing. I do think there was probably sort of like you said there, Neve, like they were trying too hard. Um yeah. because things had been going so badly. It was almost like what we had with, you know, the quick line out against Sale. It was like taking a tap penalty and going quickly, getting isolated, that sort of thing. It was just like people were probably getting out of what they normally do well in an effort to do so- something, anything to uh change the flow of momentum. But I'd be I'd be more positive than Adam would be in terms of what this can do for the season because I think whether you did or not, whether La Rochelle had um, thought that the match was won or not, I think you did something that you can point to and say, right, we've at least stopped the rot because that was a virtually historic four halves of rugby in terms of negative outcomes. Like the... Uh, I did have it written down. I've I've lost it now. What the actual um, points margin over the last those four halves of rugby were. So to show something, um, regardless of whether the bonus points come in handy or not, I think looking at it at the end of the weekend, you were maybe thinking um, basically that it's not going to be like last year. Like seven points is not going to get you through um, this year. Like so. Whether the two points, basically, you still need to beat La Rochelle away, <laughs> like, yeah, um, in all likelihood, um, in order to progress. But like, I think at half time, like you were looking at a serious, serious situation. Like, I'm not saying like, you know, twenty nine nil. If it had been fifty eight nil at full time, but like anything like that first half, if they had to come in, as you said, Adam, we're like scoring, or with that size of a margin again off the back of Sale off the back of Leinster like I think at that point the season's in trouble because I think that's the sort of tailspin that's really difficult to get out of and like there's margin for error in the URC there's a big margin for error given how well they've started Um, but I think it would have been really difficult to come back and even probably even finish in a position where you're getting a home quarterfinal let alone a home semi-final if you let this bad form continue. So for me personally, and look, I understand exactly what Adam's saying. Um, it's very close to what Stephen Ferris said. So um, maybe I'm in the minority in this one, but I think they give themselves something to build on. And I think that was imperative and it didn't look like it was happening at halftime. And Neve, you mentioned Tom Stewart. I thought Tom Stewart was super, like in the, in the context of a game that he left after 50 minutes when his team was still getting absolutely thumped. So he missed the good part of the game. <laughs> <laughs> led the team in turnovers, led the team in tackles, led the team in carries. I understand that he did have the um, 
the Lionite overthrow, which sort of indirectly led to Henderson's yellow card. Although maybe you can correct me on this, Adam, because you had the benefit of replays. I thought that was strange. And the, the yellow card. Yeah. It's a 50-50 call to me, and I think this also leads back into the indiscipline discussion, which is that Ulster painted a picture for themselves of a team that were not staying on the right side of the law during that game, and that probably lent into it as well. And I'm not saying Luke Pierce was uh, biased or anything, but I think that was just the way that the game had been going. Like it, The ball kind of squirts out of the ruck, and, and it kind of doesn't. It's It's sort of on that borderline of... It just depends what way the referee's looking at it. And as I say, I think just because Ulster had been so poorly disciplined for the rest of the game, that's probably why it sort of fell against them. On another day, he gets away with that. Uh, on another day, it's it's also a yellow card. So um, sorry to sort of sit on on the fence there, but I, I, I genuinely think that's one that it, it literally just depends on the referee. See as well, you're on about... Um Tom Stewart, I have the stats. He had 20 tackles, 11 carries, and three turnovers won. So he's your man of the match. Had they have, had they have won? Yeah. So some people probably raise their eyebrows that he was starting ahead of Rob Powering. Rob Powering's among Ireland's top three hookers anyway. So to start such a big game. But I think he showed that uh, he can belong at this level. Like There's obviously a little bit of refinement there in terms of the set piece to come. But when you're talking about a guy that's 21 in the front row, that's... Uh, that's to be expected. So I think, like, I'm going to have to write this piece later today about, you know, what we're looking for or who we're looking forward to seeing more of in, in the new year. And, like, I think Tom Stewart is probably number one in that list for Ulster of somebody that you can see having really made that progression at the start of the season. And obviously, if not for injuries, I think he probably, like, we were talking about it for, for years, probably, like, of him being talked as the next guy that was going to come through. And if not for injuries, maybe that would have happened sooner. But it's going to be really interesting to see the games in January. So the the Champions Cup games in January. Um, if he's still starting in those games or whether yeah. Rob Herring comes back in. Um, yeah, as I say, Irish international and somebody who by the end of the season will have probably played for Ulster more than anybody else in history. I, th- I think the next big one is probably that rematch with La Rochelle because... As, as big as the Connaught and Munster games are, you, you generally can't really tell because there is a little bit of rotation here and there. So Tom Stewart could start the next two games, but it might be they're holding Rob Herring back yeah. for the European games. So like Herring, Herring has to miss one of those games. Yes, because exactly. Of the player management. So anyway. so you you don't you can't really tell. It's probably whenever you get back round to Europe, it's like okay, right, that's that's now the packing order. On the, on a similar note, I thought Kieran Treadwell had a really good impact off the bench on uh, on Saturday and I'm wondering is he starting to sort of establish himself in uh, in that kind of role both for province and for country well I think you're talking about somebody who alongside was probably Tom Stewart has improved their stock the most mm. you can tell that I have to write this piece later in the day, <laughs> kind of, who's improved their stock the most over the past 12 months because 12 months ago we wouldn't have been talking about Kieran Treadwell in these terms, but mm. you know he's come back in after what was four and a half years out of the Irish setup. Has won now a week of caps. I understand that he didn't um, play in Ireland's last game against Australia, which was probably a blow to him. But I think he's come on massively. I I understand that. I think Carter has played. Carter's probably had his best run 
for Ulster this season and I understand the elements of he provides so much heft to the set piece and he has um, a fair amount of set piece nice. I understand that doesn't always get appreciated in terms of some of the other things around the field whenever you're comparing to somebody like Kieran mm. Treadwell but um, so I could understand the selection but I think whenever Treadwell came on you obviously saw what he is bringing to the team now and has been bringing really for the last I suppose nine, nine months or so mm. since uh, he really had this uptick in form. It's a discussion for another podcast about you know the whole can you sort of become a, an expert at being a, a substitute you know can you super sub yeah essentially you know like we, we always talked about paul marshall being the sort of perfect example of somebody who had so much energy and whenever he came on he was always looking for that quick tap and trying to take advantage of tiring defenses but you know is is there a place for someone in in the game if they entirely hone their game around becoming the perfect second half impact player mm-hmm. or is, is that sort of narrowing your focus too much that you're sort of boxing yourself into a role that if you can't play it perfectly, then you're sort of useful to no one almost? So I guess, like I guess the bomb squad have maybe redefined the way we view this type of thing. But I think to have expert subs is, especially in the forwards, is a luxury of depth that mm. um, Ulster don't have. Like Ulster's the best forwards need to be starting, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can look at Leinster and look at the guys that they can bring off the bench, but, like, we're not too far detached from looking at an Ulster pack in a European game and being like, really? Jonathan, you talked earlier there, you referenced what Stephen Forrest had said. Um, I have some of his quotes written down here. So he said, Ulster seem like they're in a hole. It's been a disappointing number of weeks. Folding like a deck chair against Leinster has certainly had an effect on the team, but there are a lot of players for Ulster that aren't in form. It's such an important time of the year to be in form. And that's sort of leading us into the fact he also said that he thinks um, Connick will basically heap the misery on Ulster this Friday. Um, Merry Christmas, one and all. (laughs) (laughs) Adam, what do you, like, in sort of like a summary of a minute, what are your predictions for, for the Connick match? Uh, my prediction is that my brother invited me down to see the game because he's currently working in Galway and I am going to be very glad I did not take him up on that offer. Um, it's 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 the pre-Christmas game, uh, big trip down to Galway. It's a long way to travel against a team who are coming off the back of two good performances in the Challenge Cup and are generally a tough team for Ulster to play. Like Ulster generally don't always get good performances down at the sports ground and whenever you're coming off the kind of performances that they have been putting in I think you'll see some changes to the team I think it'll probably be another week where they make sort of six or seven changes to that team that played La Rochelle and you're hoping that the fresh blood sort of makes makes a change but I think I do think Connacht are gonna win this one and I think Ulster if they take a bonus point away it's not a good result, but I think it's one that might be okay in the context. Jonathan, 60 seconds or less. Do you agree? <laughs> no, I think Ulster will win. I think um, they need to get the scrum battle won. I think that's why we'll probably see Rory Sutherland. I think it'll be interesting to see if Tom Stewart goes again. I've just said the Rob Herring. Being, I'm trying to talk really fast to get this on. <laughs> You're okay. Um, I can hear you talking yeah, fast. Uh, to be fair, I talk slow anyway, but like, um, I think Gavin Thornbury and 
Paul Boyle would be losses for Connacht. And I think you do have to acknowledge the fact that while Connacht went well in the Challenge Cup and that's a way to build momentum, it is the Challenge Cup. So I think Ulster will go down and get a result that they really need. And then it's a case of winning the next two games because they also really need to win those. Guys, you can keep up with all the Ulster rugby news before and after that match on belfasttelegraph.co.uk and of course in the newspaper where you can read Jonathan and Adam's pieces. And other than that, enjoy the match. Hopefully it's a good outcome for Ulster and happy Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas, one and all. One and all. And a happy new year for me because I'm not going back. Oh, you're away <laughs> off on your holidays, aren't you? Enjoy. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye.